welcome to the Your Data Driven Podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis, and driving faster. Welcome to episode 17. So welcome to part two of this conversation with Formula One engineer Dave Devine. In part one, we talked about his early career and how he managed to become an engineer in Formula One. If that's something you're interested in, then make sure you have a listen to part one before listening to this one. In part two, we get much more into the depth of working with Formula One drivers, how to elicit great feedback, and also how he can pull knowledge from his working environment back into his own racing. I hope you find the second part as fascinating as the first, so sit back and I hope you enjoy the show. So you've rapidly moved to the front of the car now. There's only the driver to worry about. Yes, Yes. and and to be honest with you, my desire, I, I had a desire to get onto suspension right from an early age because of the racing I did with, with my father we spent so much time developing the suspension that I, I knew that it could give performance to a car and so all of a sudden that's always an area that I was keen to work on and as soon as the opportunity came up at Force India I said to the, the head of mechanical I said please let me have a go I'm super passionate super keen and unfortunately yes he said yes and took me on and as you say, it's a great area of the car because you've got the driver involved all of a sudden. So he's got a steering wheel, which moves the suspension. He's got a brake pedal, which obviously has an effect. But then also, again, because it's Formula One, everything's got an aerodynamic effect as well. So you're always aware of, of the aerodynamic uh, influence of the suspension. And so we have a lot of people that all have got a say in what the suspension, front suspension needs to to, to do how it needs to operate what it needs to look like and so it's a it's a great fun trying to juggle all of these ideas and requests and then try and come up with the sort of the the solution with least compromises really so your role just for the benefit of people listening is to try and pull all of that together by the sound of it so you've got different specialists that people may or may not be aware of so it might be worth uh, yes. telling people about that and then trying to manage each one of their objectives such that you get effectively the best compromise exactly yes so so we have and i think it's similar for most formula one teams we have a vehicle performance group who do simulations they run a simulator and they are constantly looking at ride performance and how to change damping springs everything else for best ride performance we have uh, an aerodynamic... So a bit like your curbing experience, only with a bit more manpower. Exactly. Uh, much more manpower, <laughs> definitely. And yes, exactly. Curbing performance is one. And and they also look at, because the, the, the problem with Formula One is that it's so aero-dominated that, again, we've got a, heavy, uh, a very large aero team. Well, I say very large aero team. <laughs> Compared to other teams, it's probably not very large. But to me, it feels like... Compared, compared to the people listening, exactly. it's a very large area. It's, it's, it's a lot of people are involved. And, um, and of course, they look at the suspension and, and the, especially the wishbone members. They, they look at those normally as an inconvenience and they don't want them there. And so they're always trying to, to shrink them or lose them. They do occasionally they do occasionally use them as turning veins as well, sort of things. So you've got the request coming in from them 
we've got a whole structures team as well so they are looking using um fea finite element analysis and they're looking at the structural capability of components and things like that so you can imagine that they certainly don't want things to break so the last thing they want to do is to make any components smaller and then yes and then we've got the driver who the feedback from the driver is important come up with ideas in the past where i've been convinced it'd be worth lap time but the driver just cannot get on with it in the simulator so in the end it's it's not worth the lap time because if he if he's not happy with the car then he's not going to push to 100 percent. now it's fascinating that can happen even at a professional level we talked about this before obviously we can't talk about the specifics but the concept that you've got this huge engineering team who've done a lot of effort to find lap time and the concept that you've come up with is novel but the driver still gets a kind of veto on whether or not they can make it work the driver does have to feel confident in the car times and and but you just think as a professional sports person perhaps that they would be they would almost be told to get on with it (laughs) that was was my initial um idea that why can't why can't they just be told that this is quicker you need to get on with it but i think it was quite it's quite pleasing and refreshing to hear. I know certainly a lot of people when watching Formula 1 just think that the person with the fastest car will win and the person with the slowest car will come last. But it goes to show that the driver does still have influence and, and the, yeah. the, the driver you know, can't just drive anything. And, and so the car needs to be usable. And if the car isn't usable, then the driver won't get the lap time. So... I think from that point of view, it, it was quite refreshing to see all of a sudden that no, just because the computer says it is faster doesn't mean actually when your driver gets onto the track, it will be faster. And and I know certainly from my racing, you know, we sort of barely go over 100 miles an hour and yet you feel like you're zooming along and, and, and you, you stop back and you step back and think, hang on a minute, they're, they're, they're zipping around Monaco 10 seconds faster than I think now than, than Senna did. There's a lot going on and, and and it's all happening very quickly. So if you just prevent the driver from making that split second decision or, or make him just pause and think for a second, then the speeds that everything's going on at that, that lap time is is a notable lap time. So unless, I guess, if, if I came up with a solution that was a second a lap faster, we could lose a couple of tenths from the driver maybe. But generally, the, the sort of lap time we're looking for is less than a tenth usually. And so a driver not happy, then all of a sudden it's, it, it's, it's not going to it's not gonna go onto the car. So I've got a question for you, which we've been working up to. But what kind of things have you been able to take from the day job that you apply to your racing? Because these days you're, you are back out racing yourself and you're in the historics racing uh, in those championships, which are hugely popular and, again, at a very high level with a lot of professional drivers and such like. So is there anything you've been able to take from the day job or the day jobs and go the other way around? Because we've talked about what you're able to bring to them, but equally flipping it the other way, having exposure to a professional racing team or teams, what, what have you been able to take from the day job and bring it to your own racing? I think one of the biggest things is, is is almost procedures and things like that, bizarrely, and setup sheets and things like this. It's just interesting 
to look at how they document things and plan things and record things and and, and things like that is always is always been useful because I'm terrible for we'll do development on the car and test things and all of a sudden six months down the line you go oh hang on when when we put this did was it with that or was it with that? so even just even simple things like just the the procedure of running a car has has been very interesting. What do you mean by that? The procedure of running a car just so to set out you know a run plan of of what what you want to test to try and come up with an idea of an order that would would be a sensible order to test it various items in and then and, and how to record that i think if you arrive at a test with you know no paper no pen and you just try a few things i think it's very easy to then down the line to forget that or confuse it's quite easy to then go oh the car's working well this weekend and i've got a good result so i'm not going to change it next weekend when all of a sudden you're a bit further off the pace whereas i think obviously if you can keep a record of everything you try and then the effects that it did yeah any comments of how it felt and obviously performance then i think it just opens up a bit more in the future when you decide when you get to a track and you go out for qualifying or, or practice and you're a bit like oh, well the car's a little bit oversteery a little bit understeery you're not you're not as scared to then go and adjust the car and, and make modifications. And, and hopefully, again, if you've got a record of everything you've done, you can look back and say, oh, hang on a minute, when we went testing here and we tried this, that happened or that changed tyre temperatures or pressures. And and so I think it just gives you a more structured approach to motor racing, really. There's two bits you've talked about there which are quite interesting. There's the taking or keeping records of what you've achieved when you're doing a test. Uh, on a test day and what you've changed and how that feels and, and whether it was fast or slow. But the other bit that you touched on there, which I don't see personally that often, but I think could be almost more powerful, is planning what you're actually going to do. Because often you arrive at a, a test session and there's so much going on by that point. It's just, it just takes everything just to get the car out on track on time. By which point it's a case of let's just go and do some laps and, and we'll work it out. And then you get into the day and you're away. And, and having a structured plan already beforehand is something that I think the Formula One guys take for granted that they do. It's every minute of the car is accounted for when it's on track. And maybe that's something that's quite easy to translate back into a club racing environment. It's like we're going testing. We've got three, four sessions in the test, the 20 minutes, what exactly are we going to do or try and achieve in each one? Yes, uh, certainly. And people may forget as well that a Formula One team, we're limited on what tyres we can use. We're limited on engine mileage, even testing mileage. And they've got to be useful kilometres on the track all the time. You've got to be learning in a test all the time. There's no point going out and driving round and round. And I think people obviously uh, believe that Formula One teams have got endless money and things like this but actually we have limitations as well we have limitations like i say on tires and on engine mileage so i think it's almost you just need to make sure that every minute you are out on track that you are trying to learn something about the car or about yourself even your driving technique and hopefully take that away with you you see a lot of cases of people will go on a test and they'll roll the car off and they'll drive around and put the car back on and, and go home again and and i've certainly been one for if i've stopped learning but if there's no more to learn then i'll pack up the car and go because it's just a case of it's wearing the car out it's 
we're not learning anything so let's stop and i think as you say there's yeah there's usually for the average club racer there's usually so much going on that it's just too easy to end up after the test thinking oh i wish we would have tried this oh i wish we would have tried that so i think going with some structure of what you want to achieve and, and try and obviously be realistic about it as well i think it's easy to over plan we even do that at formula one it's we quite often don't hit all of our targets during the day so is that something you've actually done though is that something you've done as a result of being exposed to these kind of guys who are doing it professionally is that something you've actually brought into your own racing um yes yes yeah we do definitely certainly before i go to any test for me um <laughs> yeah the luxury of testing isn't quite as we don't test quite as much as i would like anymore but but certainly uh when i go that 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 Yes, I, I will always have a plan of what I want to achieve. It does help. It just constant. It just forces you to concentrate on um, the task and, and, and what you want to achieve. And again, even if you find that whatever you try, just anything, if if it makes the car slower, then it's been of benefit. You don't you haven't lost anything. You can go back to where you were. And so this is what we've always had the mantra of: so don't be afraid of trying things. And because again, if you find out. 10 things that make the car slower was that's good because you know not to do that in the future so yes i, I would rate planning very highly for test days certainly yeah so you've got some planning mm. anything else that you've been able to bring from the day job maybe in terms of the engineering side or some of your understanding or even the drivers do you get some exposure to what they're doing and think actually that is the difference between a club level driver and a professional driver as for the actual driving side of things, again, this is where my racing at club level and having some relative success, I can then see, and, and I've been very fortunate and very glad that I, I raced up to the level I did because I can see when a driver like Perez, for example, if you watch him during the qualifying runs, because they do multiple runs throughout the qualifying session, he, he almost every time will set his fastest lap in the last qualifying run of the session he's extremely good at just gradually creeping up and just adding just ta- just taking off a sort of at a tenth and just creeping up on the performance and and again when you watch their on boards the commitment just lap after lap of commitment of using every last millimeter of track the level of skill involved i think it just goes to show that when you actually when you honestly look back at your own racing you then start to look at I probably did leave a foot of track there and probably it was not quite right there and things like that. And, and yet you look at these guys and and the, the level of, of commitment and skill involved and the speed that they're doing at as well. You think, again, you think you, the racing you do feels like you're going very fast, but these guys are obviously going almost twice as fast as what, what, what we're doing. And I was also lucky enough to see Esteban Ocon in the simulator is it the same as my PlayStation or is there a little bit more going on? I, it's, it's a little, obviously a leading question. I know the answer, but the, just to give people, you know, what could you share in terms of the simulator that people might be interested to know about? Simulators are quite a large, quite a significant thing for a Formula One team these days, and they are used quite heavily. Our simulator, I think, would need a minimum of about four engineers to run. It, it, it is a very sophisticated bit of kit now, and it takes up a, a, a large room. And it has a separate room with a whole uh, suite of desks and screens and things like this for, for, for people to be. It's, it's effectively been at a race meeting, what, they, what the information they're getting. It's, it's, it's like 
the screens and the layout is almost like they have at the circuit. And watching someone like Ocon whilst in a simulator, it was just it was phenomenal how quickly he can switch on and off. He would do he was he basically start a run. I think I was watching a Hungary or somewhere like that would start half a lap before the, the start line, and it would come around the last few corners. And again, the commitment would be you know as if he'd just driven the past 20, 30 laps effectively, no faults or anything. And then it do two laps, like one, one time lap and stop. They don't come over across on the, the intercom. Thank you. Ocon, yeah, we'll just look at that data now. And he's then he gets out his phone and he's sitting on his mobile phone, just sitting <laughs> in the simulator. And then, uh, and all of a sudden they come back. Okay, we're ready to go again. And we're just going to try this. And he's okay. Puts his phone down and, and again, starts as if, nothing has changed and the professionalism of it and the ability just to switch on and off is is very impressive there's no warm-up time or anything like that it was a case of he knows he needs half a lap effectively to and he can be setting a hot lap and the ability of that was, was phenomenal and and do you think if he, if he did three or four laps he would be quicker or do you think he's pretty he's just on the pace within half a lap yes Basically, I think he's on. He's just on the pace, and and not only being on the pace because obviously this is testing now. It's the feedback you get from that. Feedback is something that again comes up very regularly, and the question is particularly at a, a club level in terms of if you're on your own making your own notes, but also if you're working with someone in terms of feedback. How do you either give or elicit? great driver feedback i think again my only relatively limited um experience of it i think the great drivers for feedback there's no emotion no kind of ideas or suggestions as such it's almost just to give direct feedback of what is happening with the car i think once a driver starts to express oh this is happening that is happening that is in referencing certain components and things like that i think that's where you need them to step back and say no just purely at corner entry mid corner corner exit what is happening in each of those three phases and they'll generally look at high speed corners low speed corners so they'll pick out one or two three corners of the circuit and then the idea is is you give feedback on all of those phases and i can imagine at times you almost as an engineer you want to make the changes blind to the driver so they literally have no idea but i think that's sometimes a bit unsettling and unnerving for the driver. I think they like to be involved. So quite often they do give them. And then the changes will always be ABA changes. So you always need to go back again to make sure that the driver isn't just improving in himself and that the the changes you are seeing are genuine. There's a lot of repetition for the drivers in in the simulator because, again, just every, every change we make, you start off with the baseline, make the change, then have to go back to the baseline for every single change you can think of. Oh, okay, so it's not sort of A, B, C, A. It's A, B, A. More often than not, yes, because you just need to ideally isolate every development if possible. And they, again, full credit to the drivers because if you speak to someone and, and you say, oh, they're a simulator driver, you think, oh, well, I love playing on my PlayStation. But again, to maintain the level of concentration um, and professionalism and deliver good feedback for the, for the time that they're sitting in it is it's it's a it's, it's it's a tough ask mentally and certainly from what i saw of Ocon, he was very good at it so what did he say so you're saying tell us about high speed and low speed corners and you've got corner entry mid corner and exit 
But what is he actually saying about that? Often, the only sort of feedback, as I say, is almost corner entry instability, basically. Mid-corner stability, instability, and then corner exit, generally sort of traction, effectively. So he just is breaking down those sections, going into the corner, uh, uh, have we got a stable car or not? Mid-corner, again, it's generally stability and, and um, feel on the steering as well. And then corner exit, picking up the throttle. And so it's, it's literally just that. When you say feel on the steering? Quite often we can make the driver feel that the car is doing something that it isn't. So quite often it's good to hear the driver give steering weights and things like this and just what his feedback he's getting through the steering wheel. And the other thing for simulation, of course, is is tyre modelling is a very tricky business for simulation. Again, it's good for a team to have feedback from the driver of what they're getting through the steering wheel. And then quite often for a test driver, that's why you want a test driver to then go into the real car to give the same feedback from there because you can then if what they're feeling on the circuit doesn't correlate to what they're feeling in the simulator then it goes to show that something's not quite right and so that's why it's, it's often good just to the physical feedback from the steering wheel is it light is it heavy things like this it's useful to then put that compared to that to the circuit because if you're not getting the same from the circuit it might make you question the, the the tire model during slow speed or during high speed and things like this so actual not only car handling, but almost how does it feel? How does the steering wheel feel to you is also useful. Yeah. Right, just, it just sounds fascinating. I think that there's two things on the feedback, both fascinating at one level, but also it's quite simple, really. You have this idea that maybe because it's a professional environment, you've got four or five engineers running around, that the level of feedback is going to be more complicated. But I think from what you're saying, it's just... Yeah, just give me a simple understanding of how you're feeling as you're driving around, and then we'll work out the next part of the puzzle, which is that what we expected? Is Do we need to do anything about it, et cetera? It certainly, that's where you start from. And then with the data, hopefully what the driver is giving feedback, that matches the data. And then from there, you would then investigate more in certain areas and you could then start asking more questions but from the start you certainly want the driver to try and keep it as basic as possible in terms of bringing that back into your own racing that's quite encouraging really because one of the things about the processes just even the word processes makes you feel exhausted because it's just well for me anyway it's just it, it doesn't get me excited it's not the most exciting thing about motor racing it's like all oh, yeah. the process that i use and the way i record that's not why you're doing it but it's the discipline and the means to an end. And I suppose by from what you're saying, if you can make it as simple and yet still valuable, then perhaps people are more likely to adopt that and then start learning and start improving. Yeah, certainly. I know on you know the cars I race at the moment, the, the amount of adjustment is, is, isn't there to, to be able to change the characteristics in, in the, the three phases of the corners. There's limited things you can change whereas obviously on a formula one car there's, there's there's still quite a lot we can change but i think certainly if you can just break down the three areas of the corner is there any area of the corner that you'd prioritize uh personally or uh, at work <laughs> well i don't know is it different so it, it, it it depends i would say at work i think ultimately 
again, we'd say for, for a professional driver, it's a case of we do still ask, where do you think you are losing lap time? And if they say corner entry, like I just I can't turn in because the back end feels like it's going to rotate, then they focus on that. But then you'll always then, because you've broken the corner down into three phases, that you can then say we can change this for, for corner entry, but if that then is going to be a negative knock-on to mid-corner, corner exit, then maybe you won't be quite so keen to do it. So I think that's the other thing by breaking it down as well is that with, with the Formula 1 car that you've got, there's multiple solutions to, to any problem. Again, if you just say corner entry is a problem, we can then look at the other two phases and say, actually, the best way to solve that without affecting the other two phases is going to be is going to be X or if the instability continues to mid-corner, then we may look at a different solution to do it. So I wouldn't say there's necessarily a particular area to concentrate on because at the end of the day, it's just where the data is obviously great for trying to find out where you are losing time because you can then make the change and, and see directly on the data whether it's had a positive or negative effect. I wouldn't say there's, there's exactly a the best place to aim to look at. What about for your own racing? For my own racing, especially in the world of historics with with rear wheel drive and uh, period tires. Uh, yeah, but you say, you say that. I think I know where you're going with this, where what you're about to say, but, but it's really competitive. Oh, so, it's, 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 yeah, it's super competitive. And, and there's basically traction uh, rear end traction is, is is king i would say because getting power down even even with uh, i drive a, a 1959 riley with it's only got 135 horsepower or something like this it's, it's not a lot but even then it can still you know spin the wheels especially if it's damp so traction certainly is is key and and whereas i suppose lower power cars corner exit is not quite so critical uh, it is critical but traction corner exit is not quite so critical because you're not trying to put as much down so you could argue mid mid corner is maybe more more of interest trying to carry the speed through the corner because you're not looking at trying to put down well close to a thousand horsepower in a formula one car these days yeah so i suppose it i guess with a lower power formula car with a lower power um circuit racer um that i race we're looking maybe more at mid corner to, to carry the speed through the corner rather than trying to put um put all this power down when you come out of the corner it's interesting to hear you say that because a lot of people at a club level it seems are very focused on the corner entry Mm. (laughs) of all of the things to of all the phases of the corner the most discussion i would say is on the corner entry and yet here we are as a formula one engineer telling us that really we need to be looking at traction and then if that's not a problem the mid but we haven't Certainly. even talked about the corner entry. No, and it's, no. it's fascinating, isn't it? Because that is a bit of a weird situation that all the focus is on the entry, yet the the time, the lap time, is coming at the other phases of the corner, possibly. Yeah, certainly. I have quite often found that it's, it's, it's easy to overdrive an entry. It's easy to break too late. And I find as soon as you break too late, you've just destroyed the corner basically i always if if i recommend anything to anyone is 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 you could sacrifice a tenth on the entry just to guarantee you get that exit every time the the, the mid and the exit every time i think that the entry is almost that for me personally is the last bit i would look to find time in as long as you've got no significant problems with braking and that first tipping into the corner 
then I would say yes, or almost the entry is, is almost for me personally, is the last place I would look to find time. When you're doing your race craft and you're in a race, it's a slightly different scenario perhaps. But in terms of trying to get up your lap time and qualifying or whatever, or maybe you've broken away at the front. That, what yeah. Yeah, yeah, what you're suggesting is to sacrifice a, a little bit on the entry so that you guarantee getting the mid and exit. Yeah, certainly. And and I've got to admit, that's probably been my, my biggest downfall in, in my own racing has been that when I'm by myself over one lap, I can be fairly competitive. But when it comes to racing, I've in my head, I've got all the time. I know the best to get the ultimate lap time. I need to be braking here. And I have to quickly take that out of my head and and say, look, you need to sacrifice this corner because you need to try and outbreak the person. And so, as you say, when you're racing, things change slightly because to... to to overtake you generally need to outbreak someone so corner entry all of a sudden becomes more critical but but again for circuit racing in general if you're quick in qualifying you can start at the front and hopefully you're uh, you're not having to overtake and so that's ultimately the going to be give you your your quickest race time effectively is just yeah is being at the front so um it's corner, corner entry is still of importance but but if you're quicker in qualifying you can start at the front and you don't need to worry about overtaking anyone. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I mean, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, buddy. If you've got one final th- thought for people listening, given your experience both at work and racing, that they can get as a takeaway and think, yeah, that is something I never really thought of before that would really help their racing. They, they may be surprised at or they may, it might sound a bit counterintuitive. One final thought that we might leave people with to, to ponder as they uh, carry on with their day. I think generally from everything I've done personally and racing, in my own personal racing and from work, is that it's not impossible, basically. I, I think motorsport can often seem very daunting, but it's not impossible. And and at the end of the day, there's you've got four pieces of rubber attaching you to the circuit. So again, if you're clear and methodical and do your research i think anyone can be reasonably competitive it's it's just a case of going through these procedures as i said about looking at the different phases of the corners not overdriving things like this and and generally i tell people that my fastest laps are almost the most boring laps because you're not sliding around and things like that and i think you just need to try and analyze it as best you can try and make it a bit less exciting and a bit more of a science experiment really is, is, is the best way i can i could suggest for, for a club racer very good of you to say because i've written an article using those that exact phrase science experiment so um, <laughs> all right <There> you <laughs> <go>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's almost like i primed you for it but yeah. actually one one thought because you say that and it and it and it sounds brilliant but one one thing what people may not realize is that you have actually put this in practice so you have actually had a teammate who was towards the middle, towards the back of the grid, and you able to work with him and bring him towards the front such that he was very consistently competitive. I just, I thought it would be worth mentioning. Is there anything that you learned doing that? As It was meant to be the final thought a minute ago, but this, as you were saying it, it came into my head. I thought, no, actually, that's really a really good example that people would love to hear about. Yeah. Just one bit of it anyway. Yeah, it's certainly before I kind of did sort of any coaching or anything like that. It was I, I warned him that I was going to make motor racing more boring, and he was like, "What do you mean? What do you mean?" And I said, "Unfortunately, this sliding around that you're doing isn't quick." And uh, basically, I just just used braking boards 
for him to break at and and various points to turn in at and points on curbs to hit and and all of a sudden the lap time and consistency came from nowhere and the other thing as well which was fascinating was was we had an intercom and he'd mess up one corner and I could hear his breathing start to change and he was clearly getting worked up and I could see he was holding the steering wheel differently and again it's this business of if you break a corner down into sections all the time then it doesn't matter what's happened at the previous corner we can forget about that we've made a mistake but doesn't matter forget about that because when we come to this next corner we know exactly what we're going to do we're going to break at that board we're going to turn in at that point we're going to find that point on the curve and then we're going to let the steering go out to that point on the exit and if you can start to break the track down like this all the time in each corner then it almost doesn't matter what's happened you can just jump in the car and do it and i guess the professional drivers this this is must be something similar to what they're doing all the time to 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 get the consistency that they get and to be able to find those last little bits of lap time because they can say well i've braked at that board and i can just nudge it a little bit further and actually on, on the exit i'm going to just aim at the next part of the curve along that sort of thing and and as i say unfortunately it makes it less exciting which i apologize for but if you want to be quick i think it's it's, it's a sure way to achieve lap time now don't get me wrong i know there's people out there senna always comes to my mind who just i'm not sure he did drive like that i think he could just drive by the seat of his pants and and just just perform but i think for the the average person and me including that i think if you can break circuits down into chunks then almost anyone can do it really that's a lovely thought to finish on and i just want to say thank you again for taking the time and and for everything you've shared it's it's a real privilege to be able to talk to someone working in formula one and who still races as well and competes very successfully in the old historic. Thank you very much for taking the time, Dave. No, thank you, Samir. It's, it's, uh, it's great to talk. And, and again, if it helps anyone out there, then that's good news to me. Well, an absolute privilege to have Dave Devine on the show. I hope you found these two parts really interesting and giving you lots of food for in terms of improving your own racing. The importance of process, the importance of breaking down the corner, the importance of making sure you're consistent, the importance of trying different things and learning every time. He said about making it boring, but I don't think he really meant it quite that way. It was really great to have him on the show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Until next time. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us at yourdatadriven.com.